and welcome to ESG Conversations. I'm Marianne Grobe, sustainability reporter at Euromoney. And for this episode, I'm sharing a conversation from the archives. Last July, I caught up with Marcus Mueller, chief investment officer at Deutsche Bank Private Bank. At the time, the group had just published a report called The Great Decoupling, which outlines three key challenges for globalization, managing interdependence, handling technology, and ensuring sustainability. The report looks at issues like food security, supply chain disruptions, and the role of development finance in addressing them. It was a chance for us to look ahead and talk about how those themes might influence the conversation at COP28 in Dubai. Chris, let me welcome you to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you very much, Marianne. And it was great to see you last time at COP27, right? A long time ago. It's almost been a year now. Are you going to go to COP28 this year? Yeah, at least I plan. So you never know how plans are finally working out. But um, we from Deutsche Bank, we really believe that this is a very important COP. And during the last two COPs already, we've seen that it's absolutely important that we as a global financial institutions are on the ground to discuss things with our clients, but also to understand how others see this importance of the need for the sustainable transformation. And what are your expectations for COP28 in terms of the agenda and where the conversation might be? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's difficult to say because um, COPs are sometimes turning out differently than you expect. But I think the topics are on the table and this means more clarity around the phase out of fossil fuels. And I think there is not a better place than then COP28 to discuss this. And we've seen recently also um, the statements according to this. And I think this is now really a chance we have all in front of us to manage this. And then, of course, the linked question around subsidies and also the targets towards renewable energies, energy efficient and energy access also for the global south. So this is one, one important thing for me. And then um, going a little bit more towards the question around the global south. Um, we have now seen last year the loss and damage fund, but now we need to see it running. So the operationalization of it would be very important. And then last but not least, and this is maybe also driven by mine and, and our conviction of Deutsche, the question around the comprehensive framework um, on adaptation. Because mitigation is one thing, but we see already nature is changing. And uh, we need to adapt for this changing world. So we have to manage these two or three different goals at the same time. So it's a lot of in the hope for COP28, but it's at the same a great opportunity. And is there any update on in terms of how big the loss and damage fund is going to be or where the capital is coming from? I'm not sure I've heard any updates on that topic since COP27. No, at, no, at this point in time, not. I think... Um, we are just um, a couple of weeks distance to the preparational meeting in Bonn, right? Um, what I've seen from from um, observers, the outcome was kind of muted. So let's wait and see. Still some time to go and sometimes the motion and the discussion just accelerates on the ground. So um, yeah. let's do not be too... To mute it already at the very beginning, let's see um, how these two weeks will really work out. And people tend to talk about COP28 as though it's kind of the COP for finance. Do you think there's going to be a bigger representation of the private sector or the private markets, the big banks? Is, that, is it going to be more about finance this year? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, although Glasgow was already a, a important um, cop for the financial market, so you have GFENs and all the come together activities of financial institutions around the globe. Um, last year, it was rather focusing on the global south in Egypt. Hence, um, the spot is back um, on on the finance question on one side, but also um, on the topic of how can we reroute the finance flows. I know that, that there is always a discussion about the finance gap, right? Um, yeah. But we are already financing the traditional sectors, the traditional world. So I don't believe that there is a need for on-top finance. There's rather the question, how can we reroute the finance which is already flowing, but then into the sectors, into the companies which have a sustainable business model. The same with the blue economy finance gap. Yes, there is a gap if you think just about it in a sustainable way. But why don't we just reroute, and this is now an oversimplification of it, reroute the finance flow <laughs> from the traditional sectors in the new, more sustainable sectors. So this is a little bit why I think it's important. But Every COP, I think, is a finance COP, in my point of view. Maybe I'm a little bit egoistic and selfish here, but the finance sector is an intermediary sitting really at the intersection of supply and demand for finance. Hence, um, it's good to see a bigger representation and more and increasing attention to it. Yeah, and I think surely the, the, the fact that the conversation around transition has also yeah. matured quite a bit and there's a better understanding of what that transition should look like and under what context and in what circumstances. And there's a, there seems to be a bit more of a willingness to fund it in a logical way, in a way that makes sense for the market. So I think people are kind of ready for that conversation as well. Exactly. And you have, in the meantime, we, we've got the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. We got the Green Industrial Plan on top of the green green deal in in Europe and we got similar activities also revealed and published um, in Asia so i think every everything is going in the right direction the question is rather about the speeds and the inclusion of the global south because it is not just a topic for the global north and currently i see rather too much discussion in the global north and in the privileged countries and regions and not so much in the global south and with the Russia-Ukraine situation, with the problems around our food supply chain, um, this is really, really hitting hitting the poorest people. And these are in the global south, and they will also be the ones who do not have all the finance tools and mitigation and adaptation tools at hand they need to to, to react to the changing environmental landscape they are facing. And this is kind of linked to this recent report that you wrote with Marion Labour around globalization, sustainable globalization, called the Great, the Great Decoupling. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what that means and what your report talked about? Yeah, thank you for bringing it up, Marianne. It's, it's, a, it's a report which is close to Marion's and, and my heart, as we hear a lot from our clients and also other stakeholders about the question, is this now the end of globalization? And we clearly say no, but we are now entering a new phase of globalization. Um, and this new phase of globalization is characterized by the question of how to manage high levels of interdependencies because the world before the change of globalization has been a world coined by a few interdependencies. And now the question is, 
do we need to diversify this further? The second question is how to handle technology in this in this decoupling or reorganization of the global trade system. And then the third question is how to ensure sustainability in this context by mitigation, the social and environmental impacts. And here, more evidently, the discussion is around the global food and energy supplies. So this is um, the topic, or these are the topics we are trying to discuss. And our belief is in the end that this globalization, if managed well, will deliver further advantages. But we have to address these three main areas. And we need to think about what has changed. And maybe we won't see any more so much physical trading globally. We rather maybe see, based on digitalization and technological advantage, a more local production. And then at the same time, a uh, trade of more intangible assets globally in future, not immediately, but in future, because we are discussing already what metaverse, what, what cryptocurrencies, and so on um, will mean for our economic system and data. So maybe let's, let's open up our mind here, how a new globalization can look like in this context. But that's so interesting because a lot of your report also talks about the impacts of climate change and the climate disasters that we're seeing. And those are very much tangible realities. And so this disparity between the intangible digitalization aspect of global trade and globalization and the very real time impacts of the climate destruction is quite an important point, I think. And for you know, your, the, your entire chapter on the food supply chain element, which is very interesting, it has to factor in these, these big, concrete, physical realities that are, on one hand, population growth, and on the other, the destruction of our ecosystems. Yeah, absolutely. So, and just a just a fact. One fact is that Africa now roughly imports around eighty percent of its food from outside the region, and the EU imports only twenty six. Just to make a comparison. Um, and here we really have a clear vulnerability of, of this, this continent. This is something what we clearly have to deal with. And then also thinking about the already mentioned Russia-Ukraine situation, it has a impact on the global wheat production. So pre-invasion, Russia and Ukraine exported nearly 12% of food calories globally and over a third of the world's wheat. Um, this is something which is a interdependence, which really makes regions of this world very vulnerable. And now we, we have really the need to overcome this and to redesign because decentralization and reducing interdependencies also means, in other words, creating more resilience. And we will face through um, the natural degradation further exogenous shocks. Hence, we need, especially for those continents like Africa, a more resilient approach that the people and the economies are not suffering further. And this, in repercussion, also means more resilience for us in Europe or in the Northern Hemisphere. Does that mean that you expect food supply chains to kind of take a, a regional focus in the future? Yeah, I think so. I think so that, that at least... Um, this kind of local production um, topic 
um, will play a more important role um, further down the road. And we already see through this um, political situation in Europe that production chains and also trade, trade chains are adjusting to the new reality. So the world is becoming more diversified. And, and this is an advantage, but we need to manage this diversification. Um, at the same time, it also implies that there is um, a huge potential for local communities to play an even more important role. But last but not least, we also should not be naive that this comes with costs. Um, it is to be expected that then also the cost of more local production, even if it's mainly then also local traded, implies very likely a higher price because we need to spend more money for producing foods um, than more sustainably uh, sustainably on the, on the local ground. So this is really something um, what we need to, to factor in. But likewise, the quality and then also the resilience aspect will come with, with a better, better degree, um, I would say. Then that leads me to my favorite question every single podcast episode, which is who's, who's going to pay for this? Who is going to take on that cost? So in the end, we all. Um, if we think about globalization, it is a system where we are all embedded in. Um, if I may re re rephrase a little bit your question is, how can we make sure that the costs are better equally distributed? Um, because it's not the question of how is paying, it's rather the question of that we make sure that at least we are paying all the same and not that one, one group is penalized on paying more. I think um, if we see um, the subsidies in agriculture, also in the global north, um, this really can be a lever for also rerouting finance in the right direction, making it also more affordable for people in the global south. And in the end, um, even if the production is potentially uh, more costly, it means also that the local farmers might earn a little bit more than now. Um, this is something what has to be seen and what needs to be discussed. But I think a globalization of the food system under the local production systems, the, the constraint or the opportunity of building local, con, um, local production systems, I think this should be our goal where we should move in. This also includes then um, the aspect of giving, giving local farmers a place in this system, which is currently not really the case. So this inclusionary factor can answer part of the cost question. Well, when you look at this kind of question of redirecting food supply chains or rerouting food supply chains, surely the private sector financiers also have a role to play in the kind of more macro level spending beyond yeah. the governments. Yeah, absolutely. So we need a discussion, I think, again, about the topic, what kind of finance tool we need to fulfill what kind of purpose. So a marine protected area, to stick to one of the most most important topic, or at least a topic which is clear, uh, very close <laughs> to my heart, the ocean. Um, a marine protected area is like a public park. Um, it, it will be hard to find... Um, finance sources at the private capital markets. I rather think that this is a question of how to finance a common through governmental money. 
If you then think about um, a kind of debt for nature swap discussion, as we have seen recently in Ecuador, this is something where private capital through the capital market and philanthropic money or concessional money can play together a role. And if you think about building a harbor or infrastructure, this is purely um, a need which the finance market by itself can, can really supply as we have very clear credentials. And if we now take these three examples and bring this on the global level, then we know that we have all economic tools we need. The question is, how can we plug in those tools in the institutional system of our global um, finance structure. And here then the question around international finance institution, be it local DFIs, be it the multinational institutions, or even banks and insurance companies, is a very important one we need to ask and maybe also redesign. And maybe let me conclude with this. You've seen this also on the Macron summit um, earlier this year or a couple of weeks ago, where he also clearly said, and the participants really saying that we have everything. We maybe just have to adjust our global institution towards this goal that they fit really the purpose of the 21st century. So on this point about having to kind of refit how development finance works and how these institutions work, I mean, where do you even begin with that? Where do you even start looking at how to adapt the multilateral development banks and how they function? Yeah, so... Um, Nature and society is a very local topic. So nature happens locally and social development happens locally. So this is for me the starting point because these local areas are the areas where we need the money or where we have to redirect the money. So local DFIs have really the knowledge about these needs. But do have local DFIs, the access, and also maybe the managed interfaces to the global financial market. So this is the question number one. The question number two is, do they have the right stuff in order to manage those interfaces? And lastly, is the need, the finance need, from a local perspective, even if you take a small country, enough or sizable enough that the global financial market is really recognizing it as, as to be worth to be financed? And if not, maybe we need to build a partner partnerships between different DFIs or even then the DFIs with the local with the global multinational um, finance institutions. Important is this interface between global and local to make sure that the money which is there really goes into the local needs. And this is not the role of the global banks. This is maybe not the role of the multilateral banks, but this is a role of this cooperation between the global level and the local level. As a global level has some money, but needs the local knowledge and vice versa. The local institutions have the knowledge, but they need the access and the money. So this is something where I, at least in my humble thinking, see really room for improvement and then also the chance for doing it better than we've done this in the past. So do you think that the private sector DFI that we're hearing a little bit more about have a better chance at getting into the really local the environment via the local DFIs? Because we, we also, I mean, sometimes I feel like the conversation focuses a lot on this need for capital and the need to funnel or reroute capital towards the right places. So you do kind of need the big 
investors, the big financiers to, to be the ones at the forefront of this change. And JP Morgan's DFI, for example, has vast amounts of capital and it can pour so much more than a public sector institution might be able to do. And we're seeing that kind of come up again and again. My, my, uh, our Euromoney's EMEA editor just wrote an article about, I think it's McKinsey, BlackRock and JP Morgan trying to set up a Ukrainian DFI to, to pick up the pieces in a post-war context. Like, it seems like the private sector is moving into the development finance world a lot more. Yeah, I think that they that they can really play an important role based also on the examples you've just have mentioned. On top, we should not neglect the role also the non-private, so the public uh, DFIs um, are playing. But I think this shows us that there is a role to play. And just um, to mention some, some f facts here. So I think there is a significant lack of existing or scalable mechanism designed by governments, NGOs and international agencies to incentivize or mandate private sector investments in, in these in these contexts, be it nature or be it precisely also ocean or terrestrial restoration. So commitments by development banks are matched by roughly less than a third of the amount from private sources for emerging and developing economies on average. And, and this brings me again to my example that um, for at least less developed economies, that for nature swap, nature capital conservation, green infrastructure projects will remain key and development banks play here a central role to make the money flowing in the areas where we need it. And like, like if you are traveling and do not speak the language, so then you need an interpreter. So how should, should the global bank or global multilateral um, institution speak the language of all countries they are acting in? How do they, how can they know um, all the um, legislative peculiarities? So let's collaborate. So the economist Williamson has already shown it that cooperation really has a better advantage than a single single action. So I think incorporation really lays a big chunk of the answer for the questions currently we have because the finance tools are there. We do not need to develop something new. We just need it to make it happen. Yeah. And I think also as the market gets more comfortable with these types of financing strategies like that for nature swaps, you can imagine the same model working in different contexts and we could have debt for development, debt for food security swaps, and so on. You know, it could start targeting other aspects beyond just protecting natural capital. Absolutely, absolutely. So these, these things can be applied to all the areas where we can combine it with economic, economic KPIs. Because in the end, the market is interested in the risk return profile. And the risk return profile gives us then an answer of what kind of tool, blended finance, public finance or private finance we need. But the actors must really come together. And I believe that um, we still have here this chance to get this done. Unfortunately, the time is running out a little bit, as we currently can see around the world with the global disasters, natural disasters we have. But nonetheless, let's do it. And let's do it in the context of the rethinking exercise of our globalization, because this can be one of the biggest inclusion programs we've ever seen on this world. And I see this maybe a little bit 
too naive, but I really see this as a huge opportunity and I hope that we can get some more discussion around this at COP28. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this feeds into what you were saying earlier about the adaptation agenda. And it, there's going to be a point where we don't have a choice but to figure out how the current financing structures meet adaptation needs across the globe. Because, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost, we've almost moved beyond this idea that it's global north versus global south. I mean, you know, there are thousands and thousands of tourists leaving Greece now because of forest fires. Like it is very much happening in the global north as well. Absolutely. And now if you think about um, new new mechanisms or kind of claims which have been discussed also since Paris under the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, so carbon credits, for instance, I think the IMF, the World Bank, could create a single liquid platform for exchanging carbon credits. This is something what I would really appreciate to see as an economist, because this also would take away a little bit the question around the governance, the fraud potential, and um, this could unleash really the financial power also for the countries who are hosting our global commons, where we currently have a free rider problem in place while the global north is using it for free. So why don't we get these institutions um, working with the financial industry to, together to get the, the money and the funding really unleashed through such kind of new mechanisms? Yes. Yeah, so hopefully some of these institutions will be present at COP28 and we can ask them those questions directly. Because I think so. I think so. Otherwise, we will not Yes, exactly. Marcus, thank you so much for thank taking you, your time and joining the podcast. It was such a nice opportunity to hear from you and I hope we can keep this conversation going in the future. For sure. Likewise, and thanks a lot and hope to see you soon and maybe then in Dubai. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please feel free to share and subscribe to the show. You can catch up on all episodes of ESG Conversations on yourmoney.com slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.